This is an ABC podcast. At 13 years old, Tony Hoang was making $10,000 a week dealing drugs in Cabramatta. He'd been introduced to the trade by his cousins, who were part of a well-known crime gang in the neighbourhood. Tony came from a family of 10 kids, and his parents had struggled after they'd made it to Australia. As the only son, Tony felt pressure to be a strong man, and still a teenager, he set up his own drug house and filled it with remote control cars. Tony spent a lot of his adolescence behind locked bars before hitting rock bottom at the age of 21, after losing many of his closest friends to heroin. So Tony took himself to church, looking for a sign. What came next was more literal than he could have imagined. Tony is now pastor at a Christian church in Fairfield, with six children of his own. Hi, Tony. Hi, Sarah. How are you going? How did your parents come to Australia? What story did they tell you when you were little about that? The story is, is that they left Vietnam from the war over on a boat. My, it was actually my grandma's boat. And they crammed what would be probably double its capacity. And they came over here and uh, they ended up in Bondi. And, uh, you know, I, it was about um, one of ten kids. It was probably... Uh, four of my sisters that came with them on the boat and with obviously other family and friends and so that we we arrived in Australia. But I would remember, you know, Dad uh, going with Dad fishing off the rocks and he would carry me down, you know, and I'll be sitting there uh, seeing him, you know, really in the fish and then go back and then Mum would put him in the back of a, a, um, a wagon and me and my sister would be, you know, off the back of the chair looking out while mum was trying to sell a fish. Where would she sell it? She would just go from door to door, you know. And so my mum was a bit of an entrepreneur and she just tried to make ends meet. And what about your dad? What was he doing for work? Yeah, so he was a fisherman back in Vietnam. So that's what he did, I guess, on his side hustle, if you would say. But then he ended up finding a job with Koreans painting. And so he did that. And so although, you know, obviously he didn't speak the language, he was very good with his hands, very industrious. And uh, so, you know, then I would actually not really remember any childhood memories with him because he probably, you know, was obviously always working. So the family started off in Australia and Bondi. Where did you move to next? We eventually ended up in Villawood, which is not far from the detention centre there. Uh, but we moved into a house that was opposite a primary school where um, we eventually went to school at, you know. What was your first day like? <laughs> like like lock up. <laughs> and so uh, I remember mum taking me in and um, and it was all new to me, obviously, as a little kid with, with uh, you know, Vietnamese-speaking parents. They, they couldn't even communicate with the teachers. And so I'm there and uh, the door was closed and I looked around like, where's mum? And so, you know, I, I looked for an open door and then I just escaped and I ran home. <laughs> what did your mum say? Uh, well, you know, what could she say, you know? And so the next day she brought me back. And this time around, she's like, no, no, I'll be, just be out here. I'm just going to chuck a leak out here and I'll be here. I'm not moving nowhere. And then, you know, they close the door and uh, before you know it, I try to go for the door again and now I'm, it's locked up. And so that was my first lockdown, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what were things like at home when you were at sort of your first years at primary school? What do you remember? Yeah, I just remember a lot of arguments. And so one of the things, I guess, the downfall of 
coming from a refugee home was that my parents uh, never bothered to learn English. And my Vietnamese, always obviously speaking English, I lost my Vietnamese to a degree. And, uh, and so the, the relationship was very surface. Uh, but I would remember would, would, is the fights, you know, and I could make out what the majority of the problem was is always we never had enough. You know, dad became an alcoholic. He would drink. He would beat on mum. He would be violent, you know. And, uh, and so, you know, it was when, when that happened in the house, it was like, hey, kids, go to your room. So that was the environment I grew up. It was just very intense. How young were you when you remember that happening, Tony? I would have been about maybe six or seven. My earliest memory was my father beating my mum. You know, she comes in the room, she's bleeding from the face. And, uh, you know, I I'm, I'm, I'm remember her crying, my sisters are crying, and and there I am. I'm, I'm, I remember within my heart it was like a rage and a frustration, you know. That was one I was just too small to do anything about it. So you have older sisters. Would they kind of look after you while that was going on? Yeah. um, I think we were just all suffering under that intense sort of relationship mum and dad had. You know, it was always about money. It was always about making things work and we wouldn't really, you know, have family time or anything like that. You know, I would eventually not see dad until he came home cranky. And so that obviously made an effect on all of us. So I remember my sister running away at 14 years old. And that was another thing that was etched in my memory was when dad found her and caught her and brought her home and he beat her up. You know, tied her hands and feet. And, um, you know, I remember looking through the corridor and he's beating her up. And he he shaved her hair completely bold so she'd be so ashamed to leave the house, you know. Um, But I remember things like that. It was just uh, the violence that went on in the house. Um, and so it was difficult to even approach dad, you know. What was your mum doing to try and keep the family together? What, what was she doing work-wise? She would, um, she would sew clothes. They would get bags of, um, and I'm talking big bags, bags the size of, you know, doors filled with um, clothes that needed uh, their stitching cut and fixed up and neatened up, you know, and so she would, she would do that and she would get us actually to help her with me, you know, my sister's around, so that would be some sort of family time. But at the same time, it would be, you know, she's working for one cent a pop, you know. One cent. One cent was just like crazy. It was just like, and you go through thousands upon thousands of of clothes. And so we'll sit there for, you know, hours to do. Your older sisters were breaking away, rebelling against, I guess, what was going on at home. Did you kind of look up to them a bit? As a as a young kid, as a as maybe one example of how to get free from what was happening at home. Yeah, I did. I think um, it was just a big divide between mum and dad and the kids. You know, obviously the generation and the language. Um, but growing up, my father uh, used to call me stupid and would beat me up, and so that would um, affect me. You know, and as a kid growing up, you you know you need some affirmation. You need to hear words like "good job, son." You know. Uh, but I didn't. I didn't get that. I got bashings and bruises to show, and so did my sisters. And so when my first sister ran away, it began to, you know, set up precedence for all of us. So every single one of us, after that, in the following years, ran away. And so you know, um, but looking at them, and uh, I used to go and uh, wag school and and go to my sister's house, and she'll be there with you know and her, her boyfriend and all the gang members there and. And uh, she gave me one piece of advice, was which was horrible looking back today. 
because we'll sleep over and get in trouble for them. And she would say, Tony, if you're going to get in trouble, just might as well get in trouble. <laughs> Go hard. Go hard. So, you know, he's like, okay, we'll, we'll stay two days, you know. What about at school, Tony? Was there anyone that you remember kind of looking out for you at primary school or, or taking an interest? So I, I, I guess when I came, came to school, I, I became the, the, the person that I, I hated most, my dad. Uh, and so I, I got expelled from um, Fairfield Patrician Brothers and year seven uh, for beating a guy up. Um, and then, you know, I guess it, uh, that, that, that rejection, what I translated as rejection growing up with my father manifested itself in violence. And so when, by the time I got to the second school, Canada High School, I had a fight with a guy. His name was Jeremy, uh, which eventually ended up being my best friend. You know, so his father was actually a drug dealer and, um, you know, we end up um, just hanging out and doing things. And my cousins at that time were in that school and they were all affiliated with gangs and, you know, taking drugs and, and that's how it all began. How did you and Jeremy used to go about getting a bit of extra cash at school? I would look for opportunities to to make money, you know, um, and that dates back all the way in year four. I had um, I had Ninja Turtle cards that I would end up selling, you know, 50, 50 cent a pop, you know, uh, that weren't released in Australia yet. <laughs> uh, but um, in high school, I began to be a bully and um, we bullied a guy for saying some things and, uh, and so I just thought, you know what, uh, if you don't want to get bashed every day, then 10 bucks a day. And that's what, uh, that's what he did, you know. And when I wasn't at school, I'd get Jeremy to collect it. And so it was horrible looking back now how, how that all unfolded. But you were a kid, you were trying to make your way through, you know. And so um, I didn't have much. I didn't have food. I didn't bring food to school. If I did, was um, it was sandwiches and butter and, and, and sugar, sprinkled with sugar, you know. Were you a big kid physically, Tony? No, I was actually um, quite small. But I, I, um, I was a thinker and I, I, I observed a lot. And so growing up, um, I felt, you know, and I look back the acceptance that I wanted from my father growing up, I, I found in a gang at 13 years old. My cousins were um, senior members of, you know, the 5T gang and, um, you know, and so around about that time in Cabramatta was a big recruit from all these other groups that are forming, you know, uh, the Chinatown gangs and this and that. And so I got caught up with them doing stupid things that I, you know, no 13-year-old kid should do. Tell me more about that that gang scene that was happening in Cabramatta. This is in the, the 90s. Yeah, so there was um, when I was in high school, the, the, the 5T leader got murdered and so that was around the time that all, you know, things, I guess, took a turn. Uh, the new recruits were rising making their way into the scene. And what kind of age were these gang members, Tony? Right, you're going from high school kids. I was year seven. The guys that, that, that actually I followed into would, would have been my cousin's age, which would have been in year, what, 10, 11? So 16, 17. Yeah, um, but it is back then the older crew, the senior crew, I guess were looked up to because they didn't take anything. You know, it seemed like they stood for things. And so uh, naturally as a little kid, it's without a father and wanting some acceptance, you looked up to them. Mm. So my sisters as well were dating them. 
you know, so uh, here I am. I'm, I'm a part of um, a Chinatown gang. How were you recruited? Uh, through my, my older cousin and, and his friends. And they just ask you directly. Yeah, so, you know, they vouch for me and so, you know, you'll go and follow what they will call a Tailu, you know. Yeah, I was just a, it's a Chinese word for a big brother, you know. Well, whether that's Chinese, I'm Vietnamese anyway, but... Anyway, you know, it, it was a big recruit at that time and for did, all young kids, you know. Did you have to prove yourself somehow? Yeah, so we had what to go off and just basically do what we're told. And so the first thing that I was told to do was to go and collect money from this house, right? And so they give us a dress. They pick us up in a car, uh, bags of machetes. And so, you know, I'm a little kid. and I Bags pick up this, of machetes? Yeah. And so I'm picking up machine, you know, and so, again, like we're, it, it, the introduction is where I'm going to these houses that are in Cabramatta filled with these gang members. And so, you know, I'm seeing guns around, I'm seeing, you know, machetes around. They're just, they're just living, in that, living, living that, in that kind of environment, you know. And, and then as a little kid, I'm, you're talk, I'm, I'm hanging out with guys five years older than me and some 10 and even 20 years older. And so um, we would see, we'd go to restaurants and I felt, you know, he's, yeah, this is cool. I'm, I'm a part of something now. And we'll sit at restaurants in the city, you know, they'll get paid for. We'll get phone calls, random phone calls every now and then. And then we'll rally up and uh, we'll go to that meeting place. And there it is, you know, we've got machetes in the car. Uh, you know, you're, 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 you're there with 30, 50 people uh, ready for a fight. And so as a little kid and you're like, okay, well, you know, all right, this is cool, but eventually um, I got called into to doing a, a house or I guess collecting money and that's where it was at Weatherall Park. It was probably my first mug shop. And, uh, you, you know, you get the address, you go there, you, you just do what you're told, you know. And was that around heroin? Was that around drug sales? Um, well, it's, the odd thing is that every fight that I was involved in or called to wasn't even my problem. I didn't even know the context of the issue, you know. And so 99% of the fights and everything that we're involved in and uh, given a machete for, it's like just go do your business, right? Did you have to use that machete as a little kid, which I'm going to call you at 13, I think of you as a little kid at yeah, that age? Yeah, and so, you know, it's, it's not something I wanted to do. You know, and I remember at a time I was thinking, you know, this is not what I want. And that, that first mugshot, was it 13, 14? 13 Witherall Park, yeah. So that, that job that we'd done, eventually I got done for that, as I'm looking back, I'm starting to develop an attitude towards authority, towards, you know, my life, questions asking, you know. Have you seen that photo again since? I have. And what's that kid look like? <laughs> uh, a lost little kid, you know. You can see it in my eyes. I, I don't I don't want to be a gangster. I don't want to run around and do these things. I, I just want someone to show me how to be a man. And obviously, you know, any young kid without any direction naturally falls into that because that looks attractive, you know, and this is why we've got what the problems we've got today. So out of that, you were sent to juvenile detention for the first time, went to court for the first time. What was that experience like? Were your mum and dad understanding what was going on? Were they there to support you the first time you're there yeah, in a no. court situation? No, I remember getting a phone call saying, because I ended up dealing drugs to an undercover copper. And then um, I got arrested and I called mum. And uh, mum just hung up on me. And so I got locked up. And so I did a couple of months and I'm thinking inside jail, like, you know, and this is what jail does to you. You, you. you just got time to think. And so you think long enough about yourself, <laughs> you can easily get depressed, right? 
And so I'm sitting there and I have a lot of time to ponder um, my life. And I come to the conclusion to think, you know what, I'm not dumb like my father used to call me, right? Because I had a heart. I understood my, my parents didn't risk their lives coming all the way from Vietnam on a boat for me to live this kind of life. I realize, you know, like any kid that, that really sits down and reflects is that, you know, I want to make something out of myself. I want to make mum and dad proud, you know. Uh, so that was the good side of me. But I explained it like a tug of war going on in my heart. Because on the other side, I had questions. What, why did the so-called gang, that well, so, my so-called brothers, none of them came visit me? You know, um, where are they when I need them? You know, and I had questions about my family. My father, in that time, I, I really believed he didn't love me. He hated me. And so here I am, a little kid, looking for acceptance, feeling rejected and even more lonely, uh, feeling my family's not for me. And so, you know, that, so that side of me was like, Tony, let's get out of here and show everyone I don't need nobody. So that, you know, I guess sparked an ambition in my heart to prove myself in somewhat. How many more mugshots were there over those teen years? Probably about four or five. So it seems you knew you were at a crossroads once you were sent to juvenile detention. And what you decide is that the best way to protect yourself is to follow the path where you make yourself a leader in this drug world that was all around you in Cabramatta. How did you start doing that? You were still, what, 15, 16? Yeah, 15. So I went, when I got released from jail, then uh, I tried to go back to school, but then I eventually ended up dealing drugs again. Uh, I had a, actually a fight with the young 5T recruits. Call them little tea bags, because that's all they're useful. Just waste them away, you know. <laughs> um, but that's a story within itself. But um, they were used to tax street dealers. What do you mean tax? Um, they were used to uh, either get you to work for them, deal, deal drugs for them, or they would rob you. And so I'm not having any of that. So I'm out of sight of jail, you know, I, um, I'm, I'm at the station dealing, doing my thing, and then they come up to me. And so, you know, the, the natural thing with the dealers on the street there at that time was, hey, let's just go, let's avoid them. But I'm like, I'm not going to avoid them. My, my cousins are the older brothers, man. My sister dates them and say, so, you know, if you want to fight, let's fight. Um, anyway, so then that's, that's they, they tried to have a, uh, they tried to tax me, uh, which eventually went into a fight. And, uh, you know, I got beaten up. Then, well, from then on, I just began to think, you know what, well, uh, I, I, need to, I need to change my tax somehow here. So I eventually found another dealer. I found their dealer. <laughs> Right, so um, the person they were buying correct, heroin yeah. from, yeah. So that was, that was it's funny because um, the 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 woman that um was supplying these guys, this gang was actually my sister's friend's mum, and so she would um supply me, and now I've got you know good quality stuff. Now I rent out, so I'm 15 at this age, and so. I get my friends, older friends, to rent out a house for me. And so then I start dealing from this house to deal to other dealers, which I already know. And so now I'm, 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 I'm scaling up, so to speak, dealing to dealers that deal to other dealers, you know. And so depending on what quantity you wanted, I would get it for you. So now I'm, you know, I'm raking in the money. How much? 
um, like seven to ten grand a week at 16 years old. In, in cash? Yeah. Where did you keep it all? Uh, in various places, right? A lot of it was um, put away in my girlfriend's house, you know, and, um, and I would sit there and I would count. I learned maths counting $50 bills. <laughs> so, yeah, I was just engrossed in that and I had st- things stashed away and I took care of people. But, yeah, yet again, I'm, I'm a little kid, not knowing did, how did to spend Did you feel this. like you were king of the world in that back uh, then? Not necessarily. I, I, I just I was, I, I wasn't the type to show things off. And, again, I, I'm, you got to understand I'm, I'm not – I didn't enter this life wanting to make a name for myself or be a gangster. That's far from what I thought and saw myself, you know. I just wanted to make ends meet and survive, you know, and, um, but I wasn't a step over. You were selling mainly to dealers. Where was the end point? Who was buying all those drugs that were there in, in Cabramatta in the 90s? Yeah, so then you had various customers, you know. I had, I had the Asian dealers on the street and then I would have guys travel from Newcastle and then Wollongong. And I'll meet them up in hotels, do the deal, um, make a whole lot of profit and, and disappear again. And so around those, that time, then I linked up with my um, sister-in-law's boyfriend. He was a dealer. And uh, not many people knew how to jump on stuff and recompress stuff at that time. But then um, he showed me and then that was just an extra boost in the amount of money we're making. Um, because not not everyone knew how to do do that on a lower level, you know. And is that a way of packaging? Is it yeah? Tiny? So you crush it all, mix it up with whatever it is you want to put in there, and then recompress it. Were you using yourself back then? Yeah. So every, you know, and I say that to that everything that I had, all the money and all that, what would seem the glorious part of that life, really, it was it, it all came at a cost. Came at a cost of me losing my best friend at 16 years old. Came at a cost of me becoming a heroin addict myself. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, I was so ignorant um, going into this because I never knew you can get addicted. But I was just a little kid and I would deal before and after school. Um, and so then I felt sick one day at school and I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm just going to smoke some drugs, um, heroin, and then I, I get, I feel better again, you know, and so... But the issue is that I had so much of it, so I never felt like I needed it. It was just left over, then take it, life goes on. And so, um, you know, um, I dealt to anyone that would want to buy, and, and the fact it was that I, I actually destroyed my own family, you know. Looking back, I destroyed everyone that I loved and that were around me. I got nieces that are in foster care that got taken away, you know. My sisters are heroin addicts. Now, and this destroyed my family. You know, I held dead babies in my arms because all the drugs my sister fed while being pregnant. And so, in no way, I want to, you know, I want to glorify this life at all. But um, if you ask in the question, that that was the way it went, and uh, it was a lot of pain and suffering that um, that came along with that. Uh, we couldn't trust anyone in the house. I couldn't trust my own family. I got robbed by my own brother-in-law, twenty grand. My best friend for six, seven years for. 40 grand, and so I couldn't trust anybody. My sisters would manipulate me as a kid, you know, and my older sisters. And so, you know, though the drama unfolded within the family, among friends and all those around me, and so I grew up very insecure. I grew up very, you know, I guess paranoid. 
Did you ever uh, have a thought about how you might live a different kind of life? Was there any part of you in the midst of all of that that could see another way of, of living or did this just feel like it was going to last forever? Yeah, no, Sarah, it's, it's good that you asked that because, you know, all along through this whole life that I'm telling you, I went to church every Sunday, right? My parents were Catholics, staunch Catholics. So we were just told to go to church every week. and, um, and In the that, midst of selling heroin absolutely. and renting out houses yep. and dealing, you'd Everything turn up that, Sunday morning. didn't matter how smashed or stoned or scattered I was, having slept for days, it didn't matter what area I was in, I'll go find a church on Sunday and sit in the service. And what would be going through your head? In your heart, in in those Sunday mornings, it would be is that God, I know you're out there, and you've made me. You've you need to fix me. I I just I had a faith, you know, but that's all it was. But it was dead. I believed, but it didn't transpire in my actions. And so that's all I taught growing up. But I was very confusing because growing up, I'd go to church on Sunday, and then come home Monday, and Dad would beat up Mum. And so I grew up confused. And so there was a faith there. And so, you know, if you're talking about hope, then, you know, there was always that there in the back of my mind that things can change. But it was a, a big discrepancy towards what I was taught to believe and how I was living. Tell me more about the house that you rented, Tony. So this was a house where you'd meet other dealers that you were selling drugs to. What did it look like inside? Was it furnished? Yeah, it was furnished. Um, I liked uh, things to look good. I brought a big rear projection TV, you know. That was like high tech at that time <laughs> to go along with my, you know, um, uh, Nintendo 64 and Sega Master System, you know, where I actually hid my drugs in, that little slide. I got away with that. Um, so one of the houses we got raided at, uh, at 4 o'clock in the morning and, uh, and they come in storming in with their masks and their guns and, uh, you know, get on the floor, get on the floor, and there I am. I'm a little kid. I'm taking care of about maybe four or five people, one being my sister and my sister's boyfriend, which was a, a roid-munching Macedonian guy. And so I was a big guy. You know, he was like my muscle, you know. But anyway, we're sitting in this um, – <laughs> we're sitting in the lounge room with the cops, uh, you know, the squat team pointing guns to our face and saying, shut up, shut up. And then all of a sudden he walks out in his undies. The Macedonian. Yeah, yeah. And so you can picture this. This guy's built like buff. And so he's walking out. I've got my head on, uh, hands on my head. I'm looking up. I'm like, oh, man, why don't you put some clothes on? Anyway, so then it was all serious. And then he turns around and he's wearing a G-banger. You know, and so we're all losing. We're all laughing. And the cops are like, shut up, shut up, shut up. I'll bet you they were laughing themselves, you know. And so he was like, oh, can I just put some clothes on? <laughs> And so it all went from serious to everyone losing it, you know. And I was like, oh, man, that's funny. <laughs> Tell me more about this boyfriend of your sister's. He was into remote control cars. How did that play out? Yeah, so uh, we're, like, we're like just kids, man. So he would um, we would drive around and he would go and, and I would modify them and they'll cost anywhere from two, two to three grand by the time we're done with it, you know. And so we'll buy the modification stuff. And so anyway, he would want one after the next. And so he would go around and um, and we would rip off these hobby stores. You mean steal from them? Yeah. And so they would just get it and we'll run out and we'll just drive off with it. And so... Um, you were t- making $10,000 a week, right. Tony. And Why so, didn't you buy them? Correct. I didn't have a brain. My brain wasn't even fully developed in trying to connect the dots, you know. 
And so anyway, that became so that that was happening all over Sydney. And so that became our undoing. How? Because the cops now, you know, they probably saw the number plate of my car and they traced it back to our drug house. You know, and so then they came rocking up at the at, at the house, uh, knocking on the door. Police open up, and so uh, you know, my sister's boyfriend open you know opened the door. What do you want? I had the drugs over the toilet, ready to flush it. And so then he was like, you know, do you have a warrant? And they're like, no, we don't. And so I was like, hey, we'll go off and get one. We're not letting you in. The cops leave to go and get a warrant, and then that's where I make a break for it. I hid money up in the the gutter of the um the house, and uh, yeah, and so I then left, and um, then then they broke in. They saw all the you know the cars and everything else, and so anyway, I, I went back home and I told and I told I was telling my family about what's going on and that I hid twenty grand up on the on the gutter. So I'm gonna go, you want to go back and I hope, well, I hope I don't find it, right? So anyway, my one of my sister's boyfriends heard. He goes over there. Right, thinking, you know, he's going to go grab it. And as soon as he grabs it, the cops arrive. The cops arrive, then bust him for it. Money goes everywhere. And so, you know, that chapter's closed and I get away scot-free. Well, you got off free in, in one sense, but your own drug use was becoming a real issue. How did you end up in Canberra? I, I, I came to acknowledge I've got a problem, a, a drug problem. So then Jeremy rocks up again back in my life, you know. He's a friend my, of yours from, from high yeah, school. Yeah, he's like my best friend, you know. We 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 did things together. And so, yeah, he, he shows up back in my life and, and then he takes me down to Canberra with him and helps me get off the drugs. And so he does that. But what he's, what he's doing is that he's running a whole syndicate down there, right? So, but we're only 18 years old, 18, 19 years old, and so... So I get off drugs there, and then so now I go back to Sydney, and now I'm, I'm now I'm not getting high for my own supply anymore. So then we're going up and down, and then um, you know we had some problems, ran into some problems, other drug dealers in Canberra, which were basically ran run by four other brothers. You know, we got into a, a scuffle with them. They're older, and so you know, being eighteen, you're not going to sit down with twenty-seven, thirty-year-olds, and they're going to take you serious. And so anyway, I called my cousins, which were the senior five team members. And uh, we caught him and, and we go up to Canberra for a gang meeting, right, because basically this fight and war is, is no good for business. And Canberra being so small, right, um, you know, it's no good for business. So there we are. We're sitting, we're trying to work this out. Where, where did this gang meeting happen? In a restaurant. This was like after hours, after time. It's the typical, you know, it's the typical, you know, um, they're on their side, we're on that one table, you know, and then the, the the other boys are standing behind them. And this is the scene, right? I've got a gun in my pocket. You know, the big boys are talking to each other. We're really here. We're, um, we're, we're there. We've got guns in our pockets, you know. Were you ready to use it? Did you think that Absolutely. might come to that? Yeah, if there's things going on, you know, we can't talk things out then. But, yeah, these guys, because they're, 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 what, what, what happened is that we, we, we jumped and bashed one of the older brothers that came out of the of jail. And so, anyway, then they, we had this meeting and one of the guys was saying, okay, well, in return, we want us, one of our members, to chop off their pinky as a sign of, okay, truce. But we're like, oh, we're not doing that. It's like, you know, you're watching too much movies. <laughs> He's saying, you accuse them, man, this is Australia. You know, and we're 18-year-olds and, man, they just don't want to cross us, you know. And so anyway, so then then that meeting finished 
How did, like, how did that resolve though? They it want... didn't resolve. So and you so just walk away we from each away, other. Walked away, and so we, we'll 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 see again. We see each other again on the street. And so then, are um, you scared, Tony? Are you thinking, okay, any minute now, no, someone's going to get hurt badly? No, by this time we've done stuff. We've hurt people already, you know. So it's just an uh, it's it's just part of life. And so you know, I'm not scared at this stage. In the beginning, when I was in the back of the car, the van's going to do the first order, I, I guess. But now we've lived a bit, you know, we've done some things already. It's like just as another day in the life. Now we're a bit more strategically thinking, uh, making money now, buying legitimate businesses. So, you know, obviously it's always in the back of our mind, you know. And this is where I lived with paranoia. I would I would go to sleep with guns. Uh, I would walk around with guns, drive, you know, everywhere we went. It would just wouldn't be a, any peace, you know, always watching them back. And so one day, um, you know, Jeremy there and the crew was having a, you know, went to a club and then eventually these guys followed them out to the car park with uh, uh, machetes and samurai swords. And they started running towards them, you know, and and uh, wanting to chop them. But then Jeremy takes out his gun and then fires at them, right? So it's like, you know, you don't take a sword to a gunfight. But Canberra, they're a bit slow. You laugh about it now and it's an incredible story, but it's shocking, you know. It must be shocking for you to rethink, this was my life. This is what I thought was normal. Yeah, and, um, you know, we're, we're, I'm, I'm worlds apart now from where I was and so I freely talk about it in that sense, you know, knowing that I'm, that's not me anymore. When you think back to that you then, what do you feel towards that 20, 21-year-old? Um, a lot of regret. Um, and I don't say that regret in that I, I sit here you know, licking my wounds. I hurt a lot of people. I, I hurt my family. What about for you yourself, though, Tony? How do you feel about you and what must have been going on for you? Yeah, I, I, I look back and now my son's that, about that age that I went wayward. And I do think, you look, I was just a little kid. And now I understand how important it is to actually have a father around. And I trace it back now, you know. I didn't know that growing up. But um, I say you fix the man, you fix the problem, right? If every man would just be the husband that he needs to be and the father he needs to be, then we wouldn't have half the problems we face today. And so I looked back and I think about that little boy and if I would have to say to him, then something would be basically... Life runs deeper than just the natural. You know, although I guess we're born into a family and not everyone has the privilege of having a father and mother around. And so we're all looking for belonging to some degree. And, uh, you know, although I understand not everyone's spiritual, we are three-dimensional beings. We are mind, body and soul. The most misunderstood part of us is the soul which a lot of people would just want to ignore and not believe in. But that's what brings us significance. That's what makes us human, right, that gives us meaning in life. That's where hope comes from. Where was your soul back then? I was lost. I was dead. My soul was dead and cold. At that time, I remember coming home from a club and, you know, on the outside you would mask, I would mask it. 
had all the nice claws, had all the nice things. But on the inside, I was broken. On the inside, I'm looking for more. Um, and I just can't make sense of this life that I live. And so I, I come on from a club one day and again, left to my own thoughts, I spiral down a path of depression. And that's what depression is, the inability to construct the future, right? I just couldn't see beyond my problems. And so there I am. Um, I, I get some heroin. I've, I'm not on heroin at this stage. I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I pop pills. But then I, I just stack the syringe as much as I could. And then uh, I would inject myself and just try to, and just doze off and try to forget my problems. And from that day, it was my darkest period in my life. I relapsed on heroin. And so what I would do is that I would go into my room every time I would take a hit. And before I would inject myself, I'd cry out to God and I'll pray. And I'll say, God, if you can help me, deliver me from this, then, then do it. And then I would weep and I would inject myself in shame and forget, try to forget my problems. I did that every day for two weeks. And I, I say to people, man, there is a God that hears our cry. Because then two weeks after I said, look, I have, I have had enough. I've had enough of this life. I'm going to book myself into a treatment. And prior to going to this treatment, I went to the church where I was raised up at. Got down on my knees, wept, broken. No one was around. And I remember there was a, it was a, um, the nativity scene was still there and baby Jesus was in the manger. And I began to think about my life, looking at it and just started weeping, thinking about all the various things that my father did to my mum, to me, my family. And I began to just uh, weep before God. And I said, God, if this is my life, I don't want it. I've had enough. You take me. I've had enough of my life. And I said, if you're there, then you need to make yourself real to me. I said, Jesus, if you died for me, for me to live like this, then I don't want to live. And I said, just please give me a sign or something. So I'm ready to kill myself. Just weeping for a good 15 minutes. You know, broken. What happened? The next day, um, I, I walked out to Cabramatta. And I thank God there, there was a church group there, the Potter's House Christian Church. Well, they're rapping and handing out flyers. I'm like, what church does this? <laughs> you mean rapping like, like hip-hop yeah, rapping? Yeah, like hip-hop rapping. I'm like, what the heck? And so anyway, I'm, I'm there. There's a beat I knew. I walked by and this guy gives me a flyer. And guess what the flyer said? It said, and it read, if you're looking for a sign from God, here it is. <laughs> like literally. <laughs> right? Black and white. I'm like there. I'm standing. And like no one saw me the day before. <laughs> and uh, like it was a divine intervention right there. And this guy said to me, Tony, do you want to give your life to Jesus? And I lifted up my hands and I said, what, whatever's left of it, yes. So you have that moment of transformation and that moment of like a miracle, but you're still you, you're still living where you were, you still had the addictions and troubles and problems and pain that you had. How do you actually put that miracle into practice? Yeah, so it was like something supernatural happens, like scowls fell from my eyes and I began to see the truth or see things for what they are. I saw life, that how it's beautiful, it's, it's supposed to be. You know, I walked home that day and I'm looking at the grass and I want to kiss the grass, it's so beautiful. And I'm looking at the trees, the sun, the sky. I'm like, how come I haven't seen this before? Right, something shifted within my soul, right? And I became alive. And so, um, you know, although I had the issues of my addictions and, and the family and everything else, it was just like a ray of hope shining in my heart. And it was like that day when I was weeping at, in the middle of Cabramatta right there in BKK. It was like I, I, for a moment I became that little boy, you know, that was crying out for a father. And it's like my, my heavenly father came down. 
And it was like I can tangibly feel him. He's like, hey, son, it's going to be all right. And it was like uh, it all happened in a moment. It was just like a, the epiphany that happened. You know, the penny dropped. You know, the lights were turned on. I'm like, what the heck? I haven't seen this before. So that hope that was birthed in my heart, or if I would say that gratitude that God will forgive me of all the things that I've done, from that, I guess, foundation of gratitude, that began to change my life. Did the lights stay on like that? Did you keep wanting to kiss the grass or did ordinary life kind of creep back in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it was like that in the beginning because, because what I started was a relationship with God rather than religion. I had religion for 21 years. I went to church for 21 years. I was faithful to my religion, but that did squat for me. So now I start a relationship. So that period was like a honeymoon period. You know, like any relationships, like butterflies in your stomach. You know, I can't wait to see the person. And it was like that. But then reality hit and realized, hey, this, this, is, this doesn't last forever. It's time to mature, right? So now I'm, I'm, I'm reading the Bible for the first time in my life. You know, you can hear me talk now. I never spoke like this before. I used to stutter. I didn't have a big vocab. You used to stutter. I used to stutter. I didn't have a big vocab and every second word would be an F word, Right. But um, what God began to do is not only repair my relationships with my father, my family and people and the community, but he began to repair me. So you were introduced to a whole new community, a different world through that flyer that you took on Cabramatta train station. What kind of people did you meet? What was different about the, the world that you were introduced to? You know, what What stood out to me was that it was only a small church group. It was only about 20 people. It didn't look like a church. It was actually an office. I walked up, I'm like, is this a church, really? <laughs> and so I walked up, I'm like, you know, this is kind of odd. And so then uh, I, you know, what I realized, what stood out to me was that I got invited to a dinner. You know, I sat down at a table with a family and I'm seeing a husband treat his wife with love and care and nurture. You know, and I'm seeing this unfold in front of me, a normal family. And I'm like, what? what? I want this. I've never seen this. And actually, yeah, this is all foreign to me. And so that drew me. It was like, hey, I, I want a normal life. But then what was the kicker for me was that his name is Din Lu, three in the morning. And I didn't want to bother people, but I remember him saying, Tony, if you ever need me, call me. Three in the morning, I'm sitting there weeping from all my family's uh, that have passed away and everything else. And I'm looking at my phone and I remember him saying that. And I didn't want to bother him. He's got a family, he's got kids. But I call him and he lives all the way in West Ride, right? About 45 minutes away. He has Tony, he drops everything and he comes for me. Three in the morning. And that uh, there, right there, and the Bible speaks about, um, you know, a brother is born from adversity. And what became a friend was birthed a brother. And so he mentored me, he helped me through the various things that I had to go through, getting off drugs, learning how to speak properly, learning how to use a knife and a fork, <laughs> right? Learning how to communicate, right? Because I couldn't talk and, and express my heart or even articulate what was in my heart. And uh, so what he's done with me, I've done with countless people now. You start working in high schools. You who had had this terrible experience of how many schools are you expelled from? Yeah, so four, four high schools. And did you so, put that on? Did you point that out in your interview when you went to be the to be the chaplain? At I schools? did, I did, <laughs> and I do still do when I go back in. You know, first thing I say is like, you know, 
expelled from four different high schools in this area. And they lock, the kids lock in straight away. And so, you know, uh, I went from dealing drugs to working for uh, West Farmers. I started off in the warehouse. And so for 10 years, I went from division to division, and they were such a great company. And they, they, they knew who I was, my background, but they gave me opportunity. They invested in, in my leadership courses and, and diplomas and management and so on and so forth. And so then the opportunity came to shift industries and go into the schools. And so I did that uh, with all my qualifications, so to speak. And then um, and now I'm in high school and then I'm like, I mean, I'm sitting in the office. I'm thinking, I can't believe they trust me in here. <laughs> and what did the kids ask you? Yeah. And so, um, I, so now I've actually, I, I go in, I run my own business called Inspire 180. And I go back in and I speak to the students in their Life Ready program. And I come from that point, uh, I've been there, done that. And, uh, you know, not only give them the dark side, but give them the, the good side and the leadership and where I'm at today, you know. And so um, they ask, and then I open up for questions and they ask su- such good questions. You can really tell some, where someone is at by the question they ask. You know, some guys go, oh, have you killed anybody? It's like, man, I've got to kill you before I tell you anything, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but then other people, you know, we say, well, what happened with your parents? What happened here and what happened there? And so I tell the teachers to, you know, to take note in this time because we want to help these kids. And so sometimes and a lot of times kids don't express themselves or open up to anybody, right? But by their questions, we can really tell whether they need help. And so I, be- I was a chaplain of the sports high school for seven years, and so now I actually run chaplaincy and uh, oversee four other chaplains in high schools around Western Sydney. Do you encounter kids who remind you of young Tony? All the time, all the time. And so, you know, I don't only go into schools, but I go into to jails and detention centres. I go there every year into, into Cobham and uh, Reby. I've been in there. But I go in there with a the heart, hey, I've been there. And you do remind me of myself. But, hey, your life can go in two directions when you get re- released. You can either go back to that, that gang life and you know how that ends up or you can begin to choose some proper mentors and make some right decisions and make something out of yourself. One day be a good father and a husband and a community leader. I want to inspire people to change, right? We're, kids don't need to be pushed, be told, you need to do this, you need to do that. Right, they can be compliant for a little while, but what they need is not to be pushed. They need to be pulled. Right, we need to inspire them to make the right choices. From the way you're reflecting on your own experiences as well, it sounds like everyone needs that person to be the one that you can call at three a.m. The person who's going to stand next to you and support you, and that no one can make those changes alone. Correct, and so we're we're we're, we're creatures of community. Right, where we we live life based on relationships. We need relationships to survive, right? Friendships moderate your thinking, right? And if you're a loner, you're, you're dangerous. And this is why friendships are so important. And so when you find a community that you can express yourself and not have to perform or be someone you're not, then you know that that environment helps you grow and increase your capacity in, in whatever skill you have or whatever skill you want to learn, right? So there, there is hope to say, hey, you can do this, and, and it's an amazing thing, our minds, you know? This transformation that you've had, but there'd be all those people in that part of town where you still live who would remember the other Tony and remember the family. 
Do you feel you've got to make peace with them individually or is the change that you've gone through enough? No, I, I, I dedicate my whole life now to give back to the community that I once destroyed. I've, I've always there. Um, I don't care whether what people think about me. It's God's forgiven me, then that's all that matters for me. But I've dedicated my life now to help those uh, that have um, gone down the wrong track and to prevent them. So, uh, you know, people say things, I can't stop people from saying things, but, you know, I'm always towards the thought of, you know, don't tell me, show me. You've thought a lot about the kind of fathering that you didn't get, the kind of dad that was not there in the way you needed and the dad that showed the opposite to what you wanted as a kid. What kind of dad are you trying to be to your your kids? Because you've got a bunch. Yeah, and I thank God um, that I have the opportunity to be the father I never had, you know. Um, I'm, I do my best since we've got the two adopted kids. Right, that's my sister's kids. It makes it harder um, because it's hard enough to divide your time equally without playing favourites to four kids. And, and so, um, you know, uh, I try my best juggling with all the various things that I do uh, in the community and in life. Um, but the best example that I see that I can give them is to give them a good example of what a marriage looks like. How do you want your kids to remember you when they're looking back at what their dad was like when they were little? That dad was like any human being that made mistakes, but more so that he had made choices to correct them and to be an influence in order to help people find the right path. And that is the path to, to God. I'm so glad your story has turned this way. Tony, thank you so much for sharing it on Conversations. Yeah, I appreciate uh, the opportunity and um, that, uh, yeah, that I'm alive to actually do this. And so um, I, um, I want to make my life count for it just to be a blessing, uh, firstly to my wife and my children and then to the community I live in and the world, you know. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.